Romans chapter 1, looking at verses 14 through 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, grab one out of the pews around you, around the chairs. We don't have pews. Um, And uh, in our Bibles, we are going to page 939. Page 939. Romans chapter 1, reading verses 14 through 17. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Uh, Thanks for joining us on this Labor Day weekend as we uh, continue our study in the book of Romans. Before we jump in, I want to take a moment um, for just some reflection and prayer. Um, As many of you know, uh, there is a, a, uh, a funeral taking place this morning for Trooper uh, Nicholas Hopkins. Um, he's a, uh, a Metro East boy um, who grew into quite a man. Um, he was, I was reflecting on this, he was born the month after I graduated from high school, and so that officially makes him a kid, but man, what a good kid. Uh, he was 33 years old, and uh, he'd been serving on the force for 10 years. He's survived by his wife, Whitney, their twins, Evelyn and Owen, and their daughter, Emma, last Friday, a week from last Friday, previous, uh, he was serving a warrant, and um, as they were entering, gunfire erupted, and uh, he was part of the SWAT team, and, and he was hit, and, um, and we lost uh, a good man and a good brother. And, uh, and so we want to pause, and uh, you know, this world is filled with brokenness. There's, there's no hiding that, and there's no trying to deny that. This is a world filled with image bearers of God um, doing horrible things to other image bearers of God, using their power and whatever means and structure to, to gain and to keep at the expense of others. Um, some of it's random and crazy. I mean, it's just been a heavy week, hasn't it? Down in Texas, another, that's just another crazy guy with a gun, um, take him down eventually by a good guy with a gun, and um, uh, all kinds of violence in St. Louis. I, I, as I've been reflecting on this, I've just been just overwhelmed. Um, it's heavy. It is sad. The death of every image bearer is an occasion of sadness. Death of Everyone who was created in the image of God is a, is a tragedy to be mourned. And it's doubly painful when that image bearer is someone who is seeking to labor, uh, risking their lives to allow or, or to cause the ruin uh, of our sin to be suppressed 
so that the rest of us could live in greater safety. And so this morning, I just want to pause and, and celebrate Nick's life and uh, to mourn his passing and to um, lift up his community. He lived down in Waterloo, I think he was born, lived down in Redbud. Um, but uh, his church community, his general community, his family, his friends, um, and our own people that are down there this morning to be at his funeral. Um, so why don't, we, why don't we pause and pray and, and um, just lift up um, his family and, and give thanks for his life. Father, we thank you. Nick, we thank you, Lord, that um, he was a guy that uh, dedicated his life um, to being a light, um, to, to living in your grace, but also seeing your glory expand um, for the good of others. Um, we thank you for him. We thank you for others who risk their lives on a daily basis um, to help create a safer society uh, for us. Lord, I pray for Whitney uh, and their children this morning. I pray for uh, his parents. I, I pray for his church community. I pray for his pastor who will be um, leading that funeral this morning. I pray, Lord, that your grace would um, be thick in the air, that your love would be present. I thank you, Lord, already for the statements that have been made by Whitney and others that are just um, clearly informed by love and grace. Um, encourage them in it. Meet their needs. Bless them this morning. Bless that community. We thank you for him and, and uh, pray that uh, his tribe might increase, that there might be many more that are exercising their gifts for the good of others around them. Pray for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, Romans. Romans. Um, if you haven't picked up a study book, I'm going to encourage you to do so. Um, these study books were designed specifically to go along with our sermon series to equip you to get into the text, to study it, to have a place to take notes during the sermon. Uh, so study the text before the sermon, take notes during the sermon, and then questions to help you move into community after the sermon uh, in order to um, uh, continue to grow in your experience. Uh, we've broken the book of Romans into five sections. We're going to be producing a book for each one of those. At the end of this study, um, I would love for you to have a record of your journey through this book, a, a record of your notes, your thoughts, your observations, what God has shown you as you have grown in um, your study of the Word of God. So grab one of those and, and dig in. A couple weeks ago, um, after I launched our study, a friend came up to me after service, and we just got into a conversation. We started talking about some of the books I've been reading. I got at some exciting stuff this summer, um, and, um, and he showed me a book that he was studying, and, um, and he ended up just giving it to me, uh, and I was like, uh, don't you need it? And he's like, I'll, I'll order another. You read this, and, and what's so cool is that it, it just completely dovetails with the, the other books I was already already reading. Um, I'm not going to bore you with all the technicalities. It will definitely come out as we, as we go through, but it was a real God moment because it was the exact book I needed it. I think the exact moment I needed to read it. Um, the book was called Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Honor and Shame in Paul's Message and Mission, and, and uh, it, it's about uh, understanding the book of Romans with uh, Eastern eyes as opposed to Western eyes. Um, and it doesn't change the, the book's meaning, but it's like turning on a light that allows you to see it from a different facet. 
And in doing so, it really adds uh, meaning to areas that I, was, I had previously struggled to tr try to figure some stuff out. Um, so I've introduced you guys to the concept of tarnish previously. Uh, tarnish is, is a word that I picked up in, in, in Kyrgyzstan when I was visiting our team that we had embedded in Central Asia. Uh, tarnish is a word that describes um, social capital. It's an economy of, of respect, um, an economy in which um, it, it parallels. So in, in these cultures, um, it's not enough that you have a lot of money. That doesn't earn you anything in that culture. It, it doesn't earn you better interest rates. It doesn't earn you better deals. It doesn't open doors. You need to be high in tonish. You need to be high in social capital because it is, it is people's respect for you, right? Even if you have a low amount of money, you'll get the best interest rates. If, if you have high tonish, you'll get the best deals. You'll get the best cuts of, of, of meat, you, you'll, you'll, you'll get the best favors, right? Tanish is, is this living, breathing economy of, of social capital that influences everybody's interactions with everybody else. Now, here's the thing. We tend to think very, very individualistically in the West. That's, that's part of our, our cultural um, perspective on life. We think of individuals and we think of our own accomplishments and attainments, and each person needs to define their own place in the world. Everybody stands on their own two feet. Everybody marks their own territory. Um, but in, in Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures, um, people are much more marked by their community than they are by their individual uh, accomplishments. People think collectively, not individually. Um, and so tonish isn't just a personal thing where you might have it or don't have it. You're born into an economy of tonish. So your family already has tarnish in the community, and you're already marked by it. And you may or may not be able to change by your personal behavior the amount of tarnish you have. It's marked by, by your family. It's marked by your community and the broader community. It's marked by what city you come from. It's marked by what ethnicity you have in, in what area. The tarnish that you have in these cultures is much more uh, established and much less fluid than it would be in a, in a Western environment. That's because it's a ranking of honor and shame. Honor and shame. Those that are high in tarnish are high in honor, and those that are low in tarnish are, are closer to the shame and to the spectrum. And in these cultures, there's nothing worse than shame, right? Americans, what do Americans fear the most? For most Americans, it's probably going to be something along the lines of failure, we hate failure. We, we don't want to be the failure story, right? We want to fail forward, right? So that we can eventually fail our way into success because our goal is to succeed. Our goal is to climb the hill of success, however you define it, right? Money, fame, uh, beauty, uh, whatever, right? Um, in their culture, there's nothing worse than shame, we feel failure, they fear shame. Um, now, here's the thing. We rank people too. We just tend to value different things, right? Wealth, success, fame. Um, they value face. They value face. You ever heard the phrase, you know, losing face, right? Losing honor. They value face. They, they value their standing in culture. They value honor. So, in, in this book, Jackson W., who is the author, he, he is a long-term... Um, uh, worker in East Asia, so he uses a pseudonym to protect his identity and the group that he works with. Uh, but he tells a story about a couple who are in Asia, 
and, and they need to learn the language. And so they hire a, uh, a nanny, um, and, and man, they just luck out. She's perfect. Perfectly, I mean, just uh, a great fit with the family, a great fit with their daughter. She just becomes part of the family. Um, they love her. She loves them. She was in financial need. They helped meet that financial need. It is a great situation um, until uh, one day they come back from their language classes. They meet her in the park, and uh, they recognize her, but they don't recognize the little child with her until they realize that that's their daughter. She just had all of her hair cut off right? All the golden ringlets are gone. Now, pause for a minute. I can see some of the shocked faces out there right now, right? I'm a grandpa, and I was reflecting on this. I would never cut my grandchild's hair without asking for permission. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's sacred territory. You don't, you don't cross that line. There, there are boundaries there, right? Well, in the Eastern culture, it's very, very different. There are different boundaries, different expectations. She was part of the family. She was a nanny. That gave her certain rights in that culture that, that were shocking to, to the Western mind. And so um, they were pretty upset, and they let her know it, right? When they showed up, they, they got the interpreter, and, and they were like, man, you need to let her know. She just, this is not okay, right? We need to be able to trust her with our child. We need to be able to trust that she's, there are boundaries, that she's, she's going to ask our permission before she, she does this sort of thing, right? This is, this is like, like really personal, important, and, and they, the, the language was confusing, so, so she went back again and was like, grabbed the interpreter and said, let's just make it clear, because I don't want this to happen again, that, that, that before you do anything like this again, you have to ask permission, Right? The next day, the nanny sent a letter to the family resigning her, her position. Um, when they inquired why, she wouldn't respond. Um, after people, they talked about it, they learned what had happened was um, they moved through conflict without giving their nanny any ability to save face. They shamed her. They shamed her in front of the interpreter. They shamed her in front of the family. And there was no recovery from that. Now, had they navigated conflict like an Easterner, it would have been different. Now, this drives Westerners crazy, but Easterners have this way of navigating conflict if they're trying to save the relationship. They have ways of navigating conflict that don't save the relationship, right? You ever seen a Middle Easterner show their, throw their shoe at somebody? Um, that, that, that is a, an extreme example of disrespect, right? That's the dirtiest thing they have, and when they throw it at you, it is their way of saying you are at the bottom of the shame ladder, Right? But if you're trying to preserve a relationship, you approach conflict indirectly. You don't come at somebody and shame them. You come at them indirectly and, and you allow them to read between the lines. It's an art. It's an art that drives me crazy, right? Because I like to just be direct. I like to put everything on the table. Let's just deal with it. Let's make sure we're completely on the same page so it doesn't happen again. If I need to hear something, I want to hear it. If you need to hear it, I'm going to say it, and then let's be done, right? In the Eastern mind, that is, that is ridiculously rude because it, it doesn't give somebody the ability to save face, and for them, the greatest thing they dread is being shamed. It's a different mindset. It's a different, a different culture. So indirect conflict is part of their culture. Learning how to have conflict without necessarily calling the conflict out, right? Actually talking about the conflict without talking about the conflict itself. Here's the thing, Jackson W.'s premise um, is that the whole book of Romans can be seen as an indirect rebuke of the Romans' pride 
because it's going to get in their way of their growth in grace and get in their way of moving out in grace to love people who are different from them. And as a result, this is what's compelling to me, is that this whole book then is a confrontation of our pride and our need to develop us and them, our need to other people, to create a scale in which we are part of a group that's more significant than others. So we're going to dig into this text. I'm going to try to pull out some of these themes. Um, this is a dense text, right? <laughs> um, I've been telling you guys lately that the study of the Bible is a lot like digging for treasure, right? Today we come to one of those passages where, uh, man, the treasure is on the surface. Man, you can see the beauty of, of verses 16 and 17 um, immediately. And the more you study, the more beauty you find. When I say it's a dense text, that's what I mean. Like every phrase, and in some cases, every single word has a level of depth behind it that when you start just looking at it, examining it from different perspectives, digging into it, you discover that there are nuances and complexity to meaning. So while it is, it is very, very simple and, and powerful on the surface, it only grows in depth the more you, you study it. And so this morning, um, we're going to do... it's. We're, we're going to fly through it. Um, that's how it feels to me. Um, but but it's, it's going to be a little teachy this morning, okay? Because this is a highly dense, very technical passage, even though it's quite, quite simple. Verses 16 and 17 um, are, are really just some of the most well-known and beautiful verses out of the book of Romans. Um, and if this were, if the book of Romans were an essay, remember I'm an, I'm an English teacher, if this were an essay, um, verses 16 and 17 would be the thesis statement. You guys, oh man, don't take me back there, I hate that. A thesis statement usually comes at the end of the first paragraph of an essay or near the beginning, and it's the controlling idea for the whole essay. So a thesis statement determines what a writer puts into an essay and what they leave out, because they have one thing they're trying to communicate. Verses in 16 and 17 are that, the, the central key idea of the entire letter, and, and here's my summary of it. Paul is freaking excited about God's love. That's my summary. He is just overwhelmingly floored by the gospel. It is the absolute best news ever delivered, not just to Paul, but to all mankind, and he can't shut up about it. God has done the work to save sinners. And as a result, we can receive the greatest gift we've ever been given. So let's kind of take a stroll through these verses and, and, and highlight a few things. First of all, he says, for I am not ashamed. Um, that, that is a, a kind of a backwards way of saying, <laughs> this is my boast, okay? Now again, writing to a culture, the Romans, who were very, very keenly aware of shame and honor, what he was saying was, was man, my identification with the gospel doesn't lower me on the shame status, in my opinion, right? It, 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 when, I, when I identify with, with Jesus and the people of Jesus, it doesn't lower my esteem. In fact, it is my boast. The, the gospel is what gives me honor. It, it is the foundation of my identity. It is the treasure to which I hold. It, it is 
it is my boast. So why does he say it negatively, right? Why doesn't he just say, it is my boast, like he does later in chapter 5 when he starts talking about the boasts that we have as believers. There, it's not negative. He doesn't say, I am not ashamed or you shouldn't be. Why does he say, I am not ashamed? Was Paul tempted to be embarrassed of the gospel? You really think Paul was tempted to be embarrassed after 20 years of of church planting and and risking his life and and being stoned and rejected and beaten and yet seeing the very power of God descend and transform lives? I, I don't think he was tempted to be embarrassed. I think what he was doing was speaking subtly into this, this dynamic in which people were tempted to rank others based on honor and shame. And he was saying, this doesn't lower us on this status, right? I am not ashamed. What of the gospel? Um, the word gospel is, is one of those words that we use a lot in church. And if, if we're not careful, it just becomes jargon. And so I, I want to remind you, and I do all the time, of what this word actually means. It's the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. Technically, it was, it was a word that was used to describe what the messenger would bring back to the city after the army had won, right? So they were off fighting this huge battle. The entire city is waiting to find out if they're going to be sacked or if they're going to receive blessing, right? And this guy would run back to the city with the good news, we won, and we all get to receive the blessing. We're not going to be sacked. We're not going to be destroyed. We're, we're, we won, right? This is the good news of Christ's victorious resurrection, that he went to battle, that he died, and that he rose again, defeating death. And in defeating death, he won for us what we could never win for ourselves. The gospel is the message of Christ's victory, right? So when we talk about the gospel, um, we're talking about something that informs us about what Jesus has done, not something that advises us about what we're supposed to do. The gospel is not good advice about how to have a better life. The gospel is not moral requirements about how to make yourself more lovable to God and more pleasant to be around. The gospel is news about what He has done so that we can receive that news and be changed by what He has done. The gospel, the evangelion, um, the good news that He paid our greatest debt and that He solved our greatest problem. Best news ever. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. The news... um, carries the very power of God because it carries the message of victory, right? In his death and resurrection, Jesus earned what we could never earn. He he went to death as my substitute, dying the death I deserve, dying under the weight of my cosmic treason before God, rising again, paying a price I could never pay. And in doing so, he gained the power of grace. Right? God has always had the power of justice because it's in his very nature to judge what is not just, to destroy what is unholy. God, by his very nature, is a consuming fire, and he consumes all that is not worthy like fire consumes kindling. He just is that ridiculously pure, and it is part of his nature in his justice to purify everything around him. He now has the power of grace. In rising from the dead, God has been equipped with the power to forgive sin because He already judged sin in the person of His Son. It is the very power of God for salvation. 
Because Jesus died as my substitute, the God of justice can now justly forgive me, a sinner. Salvation. Salvation has two aspects. When we think about this word salvation, it means to be delivered from something, uh, but it also means to be delivered to something, right? So in our salvation, the focus is not just on what we've been delivered from, the penalty of our sin, but what we've been delivered to, the very flourishing and fullness of life in the kingdom of God. Because in the resurrection of Christ, we not only see that, that my sin has been satisfied, my, my debt of sin has been satisfied, I have been redeemed, but I've also been delivered into a new identity in which I get to receive all the benefits of that resurrection. It is the very power of God to deliver me from and to deliver me to. Because the penalty of sin has been paid, I get delivered into the fullness of blessing. And it is available to everyone who believes. This is not just crazy good news, it's radically counterintuitive. Everything we know about life teaches us that we get what we deserve. And we know this intuitively. We love what is lovable. We love what we find attractive. We love what stirs us and stirs our affections. And we know that others value us for the value we bring to them. We don't generally put it that bluntly, but we know it's true, right? We need to be attractive to attract love. We need to be worthy to gain someone's affection. And if it can't be one of those, we need to at least be funny so we can distract them from our flaws. We have to bring something to the table, right? We have to bring something to the table. And the reality is, is every world religion reflects this dynamic. Every major world religion basically teaches you need to fix yourself to be loved by God. You need to become more moral. You need to become more self-controlled. You need to suppress the wrong desires. You need to fix the wrong behaviors. You need to, you need to do something in order for God to be attracted to you. This is radically counterintuitive. If we were going to create our own religion, I'm guessing it would in fact be very, very similar to this. In fact, people have recreated Christianity in the image of man, and, and subtly it teaches you have to earn what you get. If you want God to be happy with you, you better impress Him. You better perform for Him. You better fix yourself. But this message is the power of God to salvation, not to those who work for it or those who earn it or those who perform for it or, or those who do the right thing. It is power of God of salvation to everyone who would believe. It's the greatest gift ever given in the universe. Pardon. Absolute, eternal pardon. And not just pardon, but renewal. Delivering from and delivering to. It's the entire package. You're delivered from everything you've done wrong, and you're delivered to everything he's done right. It's the complete package. And the only way we receive it is to receive it as a gift. Because he gives it away freely. It's ridiculous. Freely. To all who would believe. Now, this word believe is one of the key words in the book of Romans. You're going to see it as believe in faith. We have two different English words that translate the same Greek word. Pisteo and pistis are, are actually the same Greek word. 
Uh, one's a verb and one's a noun. So when it's a verb, we translate believe, and when it's a noun, we translate faith, but it's the same exact word. Those aren't two different things. They're the same exact thing, right? So you are saved by faith or you are saved by believing the message and believing in, the, in Jesus, who is the heart of, of the message. So what does it mean to believe? Very simply, it means to receive the news with trust. The message is good news. To believe means to receive that news of God's love and to respond to that message with a responding trust and love. To say, you not only did this, but you did it for me. I receive this gift. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, This gift is made available to everyone, regardless of human ethnicity, race, or cultural background, regardless of where they fall on the honor scale, regardless of whether or not humans esteem them and think they're worthy. Right? Whether or not they're part of the people you think deserve to be forgiven by God or you think should be excluded from the grace of God, that your opinion is irrelevant. Right? What he's saying is that this is a radically universal invitation. Now, why does he say to the Jew first but also to the Greek? Well, commentators are going to disagree. Some think that it's his order of preaching, that when Paul comes to a new city, he goes to the synagogue first, and and after he goes to the synagogue, then he goes to the riverside to meet God-fearers, and then he moves out into the Gentile world, which that was his pattern. It could also be speaking about historically that God has come and worked with the Jewish people first, giving them the covenants of promise, and then from that, working out into the Gentile world and inviting them in to the covenants of promise, working beginning with the Jews and then working out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And both of those are possible. But I think there's something else going on here. Notice he doesn't say that, it, that, that it's for the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. It says it's for the Jews first and also for the Greek. That's really unusual for Paul. And there's something there, and I'm going to come back to it. All right, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. For in it, that word for, every time you see the word for, you need to ask what's going on here. What that means is that this sentence is, is either explaining or illustrating the previous sentence, right? That, that in the gospel is the very power of God, salvation to everyone who, who believes. How does that happen? For in, the right, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? This extravagant claim that that unrighteous people can be declared righteous, that sinners can be declared holy, that that people who have committed cosmic treason can be cleansed of that, people who have done wrong things can, can be completely cleansed from the guilt and the shame. How does that happen? Well, it's through the power of the message, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. All right, let's talk about this word revealed. It's the Greek word apocalypto. We had our English word apocalypse from it, which most of you probably think of just devastating wars uh, or maybe bad 70s movies um, or good, depending on your taste. Um, but apocalypse doesn't actually mean destruction. The word apocalypse, I mean, the, the English word has come to mean that. It means revelation. That's why in some Bibles, the last book of the Bible is sometimes called the apocalypse. 
in most of our Bibles, it's called the book of Revelation. Why? Because there's something being revealed. There's something being uncovered. It is divinely being revealed to the mortal mind. There are things that we can't see unless God reveals them to us. There are things we're not going to understand unless God equips us to understand them. There are things that we would never guess unless God reveals them. They, they are sometimes called mysteries in Scripture. A mystery in the Bible is not something that's hard to figure out. It's something that's impossible to figure out unless God shows it to you. And once He shows it to you, it's not mysterious anymore. It's not hard to figure out. It's just something you could have never guessed on your own. There's something being revealed to us here divinely. What is it? It is the righteousness of God. And my iPad is malfunctioning. Pause for technical difficulties. I would prefer not to preach this one without my notes. There we go. I could do it, but it'd be way longer. Um, all right. So it's present tense, apocalypto. It's present tense, which means that there's something not just being revealed, but it's being revealed in an ongoing fashion. Okay? So what is it revealing? It is in an ongoing fashion revealing the righteousness of God. Surprise, surprise, there's a lot of scholarly debate about what the righteousness of God means. I mean, literally books written about this phrase. And what in the world Paul specifically meant by it. I'm going to skip all the gory technicality and just go straight to the punchline this morning. Um, the righteousness of God, which is being progressively revealed, progressively uncovered, relates to both our status before God and God's activity to earn us that status. It's related to both status and activity. The status focuses on our experience. The activity focuses on His experience. Let me explain what I mean. The word righteousness, dikaiwo, is, is a key word with Paul. It can mean righteousness or, or rightness or just, right? Sometimes it's declared, you know, somebody who is just or, or right or, or righteous is dikaiwo. The, the verb dikaiwo means to, to declare somebody right. Right? In a court of law, if you were to go before a judge and, and you had your case weighed and, and the judge looked at all the evidence and he might bring down the gavel and say, I declare you right. And you walk away with a, a forensic legal standing of rightness from the court. Right? Um, the word righteousness is connected to this idea of being right, of being declared right, of being justified. Right? So, so the gospel progressively reveals, continues to reveal to a sinner that they are covered in the very righteousness of God. That you have a status of righteousness. I believe the gospel, I have to keep believing the gospel because it's the message of Christ's victory over my sin back then and right now. Let me ask you, follower of Christ, have you ever looked at the condition of your own heart and thought, I don't know if I'm even a Christian. Have you ever looked at the pattern of your own behavior and thought, I must be outside the realm of the grace of God, otherwise I would be able to overcome this sin. 
or I would stop doing this thing, or I would stop struggling in this way, or, or I would have more victory, or, or I would see more moral transformation. Like I'm putting on a good face for y'all, but I can see in here, and it's pretty miserable, right? Have you ever been in that place where you're like, ah, I, I don't think I'm in? In that moment, you need the progressive revelation that comes from the gospel, that you have a status of rightness with God. See, that status isn't dependent on your behavior. You don't earn it, and you can't unearn it. You didn't gain it by fixing yourself. You can't lose it by discovering how broken you are. The reality is, is you're more broken than you can imagine. You're more sinful than you could ever know. But the gospel declares that you are more loved than you can hope. You need the progressive revelation of the gospel to keep reminding you that not only did he die and rise again, that you might be forgiven for all the bad things you did back then, he died and rose again so that you could have a new status before God regardless of your moral performance. That's good news. I have been declared right and I can't unearn what I didn't earn to begin with. So it reveals my status progressively, and I need it to. I need to believe the gospel, and I need to keep believing the gospel. I need this revelation to continue showing me who I am in Christ, who He's declared me to be because of Christ's death and resurrection. So it reveals my status, but it also reveals His righteous work to give me that status. It also reveals God's righteous activity to declare a sinner righteous, right? When we look at the message of the gospel, where does it take us? Every single time, the message is the victorious good news that Jesus died under the weight of my sin and rose again in victory over it. Every single time I turn my eyes back to the gospel, every single time I consider this message anew, my attention is taken off of me and my activity and recentered on Him, who He is and what He's done. And once again, I see what a righteous God has done to be able to righteously declare a sinner like me righteous. God is not continuing to do the work of justification. That was done, right? Jesus declared from the cross, it is done. He died when he rose again. He sat down at the right hand of his father on high, right? The work of redemption is done. But that doesn't mean we don't need to keep looking at it to keep seeing how His activity won for us what we could never win for ourselves, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. God is not continuing to do the work, but the message continually reveals to us the work that He's already done so that we can continue to explore it and understand it and have our pride undone by it and have our, our, our guilt comforted and our shame removed and, and our hearts transformed as we look at the price that He paid to free us from our debt. It is the power of God revealed. So the gospel continually reveals my status as a righteous believer, even in my unrighteousness, and it continues to reveal to me the work that a righteous God did in order to win me that incredible prize. And that whole thing is from faith for faith, right? 
Paul is once again reinforcing the tie between God's work and how we gain the benefit of it, right? That, that, that He did the work and we receive it by faith. But, but why does He say faith twice? Why, why is it from faith and, and for faith, right? I get that God does the work and we receive it as a gift. Why, why this complex language? Great question. It could mean that we receive it by faith and continue growing in it by faith. That's, ten, that's where I tend to lean, that we receive it initially by faith and we continue growing in it by faith. And in other words, you don't just believe the gospel and then get on to the hard work of obedience. You believe the gospel and you keep believing the gospel. That's in fact what obedience looks like in the Christian life. That's where all moral transformation comes from in the Christian life. That's how you actually become changed into the image of the Savior who has saved you is, is by looking and having His love undo you and His, his love comfort you and, and, and His holiness invite you instead of threaten you, right? It is, it is in looking. It is from faith for faith. So you grow in faith as you continue to move forward in your understanding of the gospel. It could also be that Paul is simply being emphatic, that, it's saying, that he's essentially saying that it's by faith and faith alone, not faith in your effort, faith in your works, faith in your religious duty, a faith in, no, it is faith and faith alone. He, he could also be making it simply emphatic. Either way, it's the same point, that uh, for everyone who believes the gospel is the power of God for salvation, And it reveals to us the righteousness of God progressively as we engage it by faith. And then he wraps it up by showing us that this is not a new idea, right? He takes us back to Habakkuk 2.4, which he quotes quite a bit through the New Testament. And and, and it's very simple, that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Surprise, surprise, there's actually quite a bit of debate about how this should be translated. (laughs) Paul is quoting it from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, and it could mean that the righteous live by faith. In other words, that's how they go about their life. They believe and they continue believing. Or that the righteous by faith shall live. In other words, the one who's been made right by faith has been declared eternally alive before God. It can mean either one, okay? I kind of go with our translators. The ESV leans more toward this idea that, that, that the righteous shall live by faith, that we're not only made alive by faith, but we continue to experience and move forward in that faith. All right, there you go, man, technical. Uh, our quick run through these two very, very beautiful and simple verses that are full of depth, and all I did was, was um, we could do a whole uh, extended series in these two verses alone. Um, but what I want you to see is that the gospel is really, really good news. And it's available to anybody. I'm broken and so are you. And guess what? You can get in on this. God has done the work. You can receive the benefit. He has paid the price. You can receive the, 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 the grace. You can be declared right before God. And in being declared right, you can be delivered not only from everything you've done wrong, you can be delivered into the benefit of everything that he's done right. That's great news. That's the main point of these two verses, and that's the main point of the entire book of Romans. But there's something else happening here that's subtle. And that's what I want to, as we wrap up, to pay attention to, which means we need to go back to the very first word in these two verses, which is for, right? My my old teacher way back in the day used to tell me, always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? What is the for, for? Because it means something. What that means is that the two verses we've looked at 
are not the main point of the section. They're actually supporting points. The word for means that everything he said in these two verses is actually meant to illustrate or drive home a main point he has already made. Well, where do we find that main point? In verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am under obligation. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also. See, the main point of this paragraph is that I'm under obligation to share this good news. Paul's saying, look, I received this grace and I am under obligation to share this grace. I received this incredible message and I am under obligation to the risen Christ to share this message and to carry this message forward into the world so that others can receive the benefit of this victory. I am under obligation. Why in the world is that the main point? Um, most commentators honestly just kind of brush over this and say, well, the main point can be found in a subpoint, which technically can be true. Um, but, but here's what I, I'm seeing here, y'all. Um, stick with me. I'm geeking out a little bit, but this is really cool. Notice that he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and foolish. Notice the use of Greek again, which is really unusual for Paul. Paul normally says, when he's speaking about non-Jewish people, he uses the word uh, Gentile, which is the Greek word ethnos. It means every ethnicity outside of Judaism. So the Jews spoke about the Gentiles, and it was a derogatory term to them. When they spoke about the Gentiles, it was, it was insulting. The Gentiles were lower down the honor-shame spectrum, all of them. And so when they spoke about Gentiles, it was, it was a bit insulting, right? It was like when I first moved to South County, and, and I hear some of my students joking about Hoosiers. And, and I'm like, why are you guys joking about people from Indiana? And they're like, what are you talking about? We're talking about people from Jefferson County, right? It, it was a term I had never heard from California. I'd never. I just knew the movie Hoosiers. I thought Hoosiers were cool, um, and I still do. Um, but, uh, but for them, it was a derogatory term to talk about people who, who, who came into South County from, from kind of the sticks, the woods. Um, so it was derogatory. The term Gentile carried that kind of derogatory from, from very, very mildly insulting all the way up to kind of like the biggies, like, like the N-word. When they used this term, it was meant to be insulting. It was meant to be degrading. It was meant to let people know you are farther down the honor-shame spectrum than where I am. Paul uses this term all the time to challenge the Jewish pride that would exclude Gentiles from the gift of grace, right? Continually driving home that, that the grace of God is for both Jews and, and Gentiles, but here he switches, and instead of talking about Gentiles, he talks about Greeks. This is pretty fascinating because the Romans, while they were Italian, <laughs> right, and, and Rome was the power center of the ancient world, Greece was the cultural center. They were culturally Greek. They spoke the Greek language. They held to the Greek culture. The Greek creativity and, and, and wisdom literature dominated the ancient world. And so while they were Romans and were part of the power structure of Rome, culturally they considered themselves Greek, and they considered the Greeks at the top of the honor-shame spectrum. 
So as soon as he switched from Gentile, which is a word that wouldn't have carried any positive connotations for them, right? And in verse 13, he says, man, I, I am obligated to the Gentiles. And they're like, mm, Gentiles, yeah. I want to come preach the, the good news to the Greeks. And they're like, hmm, that's us, right? That's our pride. That's, that's who we are. I'm under obligation to the Greeks. He would have, he would have been, in a sense, um, inflaming their pride a little bit. They, they would have had an emotional reaction to, to this um, terminology switch. And then he immediately com- combines it with barbarian. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians. Barbarian is, is I'm an English teacher, remember, onomatopoeia? You guys remember that from your English classes? Onomatopoeia is a word that we make up because it sounds like a sound, like bam. That's onomatopoeia. The word has no meaning. It just represents a sound. Barbarian is what, what um, the Greeks would have heard when, when foreign people showed up and started speaking foreign languages. They just heard bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians right? It was, it, was, it was insulting. It was derogatory. In the same way the Jews called non-Jews Gentiles, the cultural Greeks called non-cultural Greeks barbarians. And it was their way of saying, you're lower down the shame and honor scale from me. Culturally, we're better. And Paul is, is kind of, what's cool here is Paul comes in with a big hug in the beginning. He's like, man, I have heard about your faith. People are talking about you all around the world. I can't wait to come see you, to impart some spiritual gift to you and to to reap a harvest among you. Man, and as he's hugging them, he grabs their pressure points. And he's like, let me just start digging in a little bit to your pride. Because that's the way the gospel works. The gospel gives us a warm embrace and invites us near. It calms our shame. It doesn't focus on our guilt. But it absolutely challenges our pride. As he's inviting them near to this beautiful message of God's love, he is pressing in specifically to the pressure points that he knows he needs to press into because they prided themselves on their Greek heritage. They prided themselves on their wisdom, right? They had Plato. They had Aristotle. He's like, I am under obligation to the wise and to the foolish. Paul is moving from from the invitation to the confrontation. Y'all, that's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel right there. It will confront your pride and it will invite you to grace because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. For us to believe the gospel requires us to repent of our pride. We need to get off the the honor-shame spectrum. We need to get out of the othering business, of the us-them, of the pride that says somehow I deserve the grace of God, but those people don't. Paul is pressing into their pride because that pride will, one, keep them from experiencing the fullness of what God has delivered them into, right? They've been saved into the blessings that it will limit their ability to experience those blessings, but it will also limit their ability to share those blessings with others. As Paul moves from Rome to Spain to share the gospel, they're going to see that as a step down because the Spanish are barbarians. 
He wants to confront their pride so that they can be freed into the experience of the gospel and freed to the mission of the gospel so that they can experience it more deeply themselves and share it more freely with others. But he's going to do it indirectly. Throughout the letter, he talks a lot about Jewish-Gentile tensions, which has always confused scholars, because remember, the Jews had been kicked out of Rome eight years earlier. Now, some of the Jews surely filtered back in at this point, but they weren't a dominant presence. It was a primarily Gentile church, and yet he spends a tremendous amount of time talking about Jewish-Gentile tension. Why? Because it mirrors Greek barbarian tension. It mirrors the human tendency to limit the gospel by our pride. And he's inviting them as he rebukes the pride of others to be rebuked themselves. And there's the invitation for us. As Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles, as he talks about human pride, as he talks about our need to other others, we need to see ourselves in that text. Because Paul is rebuking our pride too. Whatever it is that you think makes you better than others, whatever it is that makes you higher on the honor status and and makes other people lower, whatever it is that makes you look at some people and think, wow, you deserved what you got. That human need to find some intrinsic superiority in self and some intrinsic flaw in others that somehow makes us more worthy. It needs to be exposed, it needs to be rebuked so that we can, by grace, repent of it and grow in our experience of grace and in the mission of grace. All right, I'm going to close this there in a word of prayer and uh, create some space for us to reflect. Um, we'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. And I thank you for this incredibly good news. I, it's, I could never... If I was trying to come up with something crazy, Lord, I could have never come up with this myself. That the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would become part of his creation so that he could bear the weight of his creation's cosmic treason, die under our sins so that he could rise again, defeating it, inviting us back to be what we were created to be. And then all you require of us to receive the benefit of this this work that's worth more than all the gold in the universe. All you require of us is to receive that love. To trust the one who did it and to receive that love and and then to grow in our response to it, to, to love you because we were first loved by you, to grow in faith because we find you trustworthy, to once again learn what it means to walk in humble dependence on our God instead of in competition with him. Invite our hearts near. Renew our joy in this incredible message. And Lord, as we dig in and we work our way through this, I pray, Lord, that you would help us discover those things that are blocking us from growing in grace. Help us discover those things that are blocking us from loving people whose experiences, cultural backgrounds, ethnicities, economic status is different from ours that we might be able to love as we've been loved and love others as you love them. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.